Gaming on the Frontier. And this is Trav. Welcome to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast, your podcast where you find out that there are people out there keeping an eye on you and they may be doing it for not the right reasons. Yes, we are continuing with adding real world cults and secret societies to your role playing games. Okay, we have the Mafia. And yes, this is not visual, so you sort of have to bend the tip of your nose to one side. The family. Now, they've been so glorified. I mean, the Sopranos. Come on. I mean, that was probably the biggest series in the 90s that had to do with the the American Mafia. And it was funny because a lot of actual Mafia people, they decided to go straight legit and become actors. What do they play? Well, you fall back on what you know. So you had people like, uh, what was his, his name? Big Pussy. I don't know what his real name was, but just... And he what they were involved, and so when they played, they were just drawing from experience. A uh, series of organizations and families with loose ties, often thought of as one overarching secret society, spread across many countries. The mafia has operations including extortion, drug running, prostitution, gambling, and murder, but also more respectable abilities. Yes, respectable. In its its initiation rites, like many long-lasting criminal organizations, have a religious edge to them. In the Mafia's case, well, some Roman Catholic overtones as almost all the members belong to that faith. In many ways, the Mafia is the criminal organization in which others are measured. Its power is incredible at the organization's height and still is in some areas. In the U.S., it came into its own during the Prohibition era through alcohol smuggling, gaining the vast part of the power and fame there. Smuggling illicit goods is a ready-made source of income, motivation to protect the trade, and conflict for any secret society or criminal organization. An interesting thing to consider is that many mafia families also have good relations with intelligence agencies. That's something I didn't figure. This would be extremely helpful for any international criminal organization, provides the intelligence community with information freedom of action we normally wouldn't have. In-game, it also provides a ready-made point of conflict between those intelligence services and law enforcement in your setting. For an organization like mafia exists in a campaign, it needs a strong identity and some lucrative criminal trade. They have both religious and eth- ethnic and religious religious identity in addition to the membership in society. Uh, yeah. Fantasy setting? You could have dwarves running all sorts of stuff. I mean, they're they're good with finance and because they got golden gems, you know, they, they know how to handle wealth. And also, you know, with those huge thick limbs they have, they're really good at the arm-breaking thing. So, I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, right. and, and remember, you know, uh, uh, Sar, uh, uh, you know, and Mordor. Uh, Sauron. Sauron and Mordor was the you know was the ultimate um, egalitarian? I mean, he took in you know the wild man. He took in orcs. He took in goblins. He took in anybody dis- anybody disaffected enough to want something to believe in after being shunned by the rest of society. Yeah, Soren was yeah. real good at that. Yeah, he he, uh, he his his army was you know full of all kinds of people. You know, mostly working together. You know, toward the betterment betterment of everybody. But mostly Sauron, of course. But yeah. yeah, but yeah, the mafia again. Great villains that I mean, they're they're not quite. Uh, what is it that uh, Amanda Waller brought up in Suicide Squad? The U.S. government had a bargain with the mafia to watch the ports during World War II. As I said here in this this book, that 
they are in good with intelligence agencies because to fight your enemy, you must understand them. Well, yeah, you can't fight them otherwise. Yeah, and and of course, as I said, the mafia, it, it's reputed that when Marco Polo and other Italian travelers went to the to Asia, they may have brought back things about the Yakuza and the Tongs and the Triads, and that may have been how the mafia was formed. I mean, it's it's reasonable to assume that. They would have seen these other criminal enterprises in, in in action and they just didn't trade products. They were also cultural trades. I mean, it was said that the Chinese are the ones that originally invented pasta. You know, maybe that's not the only thing they brought back. And so they just tied it in with their own because obviously the customs of the Orient, as they called it back then, were too foreign. But let's tie it in with our own. I don't see how we can't use these to our own advantage and tie them into, you know, Vatican City. So, and even in the Mafia today, movies, oh God, I'm blanking on the Henry Hill. Yeah, Goodfellas, duh. Um, <laughs> Ray Liotta, Robert Robert uh, De Niro, and Joe Pesci. You are not yeah. really a member of the Mafia unless you have Italian blood in you. And illegitimacy does not count. That is often a problem. You have to be, you know, your parents had to have been married and all that. So yeah, they they take a lot of pride in ethnicity, religion, and those typical normal family backgrounds. And so you could put that in a fantasy setting. You could have the rich human families of a nation and they, you know, they're all like shipping magnets and, you know, they deal with caravans and all that. And again, we're going back to the Mafia Teamsters thing. Or you could have a demi-human race where it's like, yeah, you may be a human thug working for this dwarven coalition of families of clans, but you'll never be a made man. You could be you could be drinking with the dwarves and all that, but you're still not going to be fully in because you're not dwarf. You could be a human raised by dwarves. Your parents were killed and they took you in. It does not matter. You are still not a dwarf. So you can do this whole and it's not so much racial purity like the Nazis and the Aryans, but still it helped with their membership. I've seen a lot of cultures here and you know today. They would rather take a crooked blood family member than a straight and honest outsider, because despite that rat son of a mother who you know pilfered the coffers of the family, he's still family. Right. And I had former coworker or former uh, roommates who dealt with that with their business. Like, and I'm even like, why this person? robbed from them he embezzled it's because it was his nephew i'm like okay and i'm just there looking at my former roommate joe i'm like are you kidding me i mean how that would be the ultimate betrayal nope family in a lot of ethnicities is that tight greeks and especially the italians with the mafia and, and so it doesn't mean there won't be a there won't be a, a price to pay for that betrayal it just means that they're still not going to throw you out right i mean you may still be part of the family but you're going to get the crappy business that's in a bad part of town and you get that it's like yeah you're running a business but you're running it you know for those of us in Detroit, you know like uh, Plymouth and Greenfield. If y'all from the metro Detroit area, you know that area. I, I drove there broad daylight in a Napa truck and I didn't want to be there. <laughs> they will put you in the worst possible place ever. It's like, yeah, you're still part of the family, but <laughs> didn't say we were going to make it fun. You still, you know, screwed us over there, Giovanni. Oh, <laughs> that's you over there. Yeah. But the Mafia, yeah, it, it's another one of those tailor-made villains. Tailor-made groups that just... and. 
unless you've been under a rock for the past 50 years, you know how to, and you're a GM, you know how to run a mafia-based adventure. It's an it's another gimme. And I mean, you don't need to watch have watched The Sopranos to do this. Which is funny, because Tony Soprano, I mean, he was like Machiavellian. I mean, he, he lived by Sun Tzu's The Art of War. He often, you know, James Gandolfini probably had to study that cover to cover in order to, you know, be able to quote it properly. But yeah, the mafia, doing it in the future, you could have an inter- an interconnected group of families. It's just their scope would be a lot bigger, obviously. Instead of, oh, you know, you got the mafia here in New York and Chicago and Detroit. We did have mafia here in Detroit until late 70s, early 80s, when the last old bosses got, you know, carted off to jail. I mean, most of them are probably dead now. It's all gangs here in Detroit. There is no organized crime that I know. My, my late ex-father-in-law was a cop. He had to deal with both organized crime and gang seminars every so often. Going to Detroit or wherever and having to do these. But yeah, Detroit hasn't had real mafia issues, yeah, probably since the 80s. And that was the last of the old Dons here getting, you know, carted out to jail. And as I said, most of them are probably died in prison. But as far as a future, it would be just, you, you broaden the scope. And a lot of times from fantasy to modern to, um, yeah, fantasy, modern to futuristic, you just expand the scope. And we did that podcast ages ago. I think that might have been even before I joined in. How big is big? And it, we dealt with the matter of scaling your campaign. And this would be a perfect example. Using the mafia, they're just, instead of by cities now, they're by planets or even systems. So Sure. Yeah. I mean, if if a, in the if your uh, a corporation is allowed to have complete control of a star system, then yeah, sure. If you buy a corporation, you're literally buying a star system. Yeah. Okay. So and and the mafia, I'm sure you know, would love to get to that level of of control, and maybe they are, you know, or maybe they control, you know, businesses in a geographical area, which again, star systems. So yeah, either way, it's up to you. <laughs> there is no star travel currently right now. You can make it up any way you want. Yeah. Okay, we have Majestic 12. It's U.S. base, and they're in league with the Greys. Supposedly formed in 52 to investigate possible alien activity. Important part of the UFO cosmology. Documents describing Majestic 12's formation have been widely distributed and are considered to be fraudulent in many circles. Those who believe the organization exists most suspect that its members are in league with one or more group of extraterrestrials including the Greys. In theory, it's controlled by the current president, known as Majestic, with MJ-1 through 12 serving as advisors. Below that, the organization is broken into projects. Project Garnet is one of the best known of these, working as security and protecting Majestic 12 secrecy. Yeah, consider I'm reading this right now in this book. I think you might want to fire some of the people there in Majestic 12, just saying. Another commonly referenced project is Project Zeus, the SDI. You know, the old Star Wars defense system that we had in the 80s that Reagan talked about. Which is that we didn't that we didn't have in the in the eighties that they thought about building, but yeah. they wanted to spend the money on it. Which is the Majestic Twelve worldview was intended as defense against potential hostile aliens. Uh, Majestic Twelve is an organization as an organization great for modern campaigns in the U.S. where they want a traditional government aliens organization. It becomes even more interesting if the aliens are dealing with aren't traditional space aliens, but from some other source. Fantasy settings could have organizations, yes, yeah, seeking beings, meetings with beings from other planes. Or science fiction settings, other times and dimensions. Serves as a good example of a government military investigation. It's extremely important, but must be kept secret. Any country that can win alliance with an advanced species is a potentially huge advantage, thus driving nations to great great lengths to win that alliance. Yeah. Majestic 12, they would be technology, weaponry, what have you. So you're going to have governments do that. And in fantasy, yeah, it would be most likely... I mean, you could do it in other 
star systems, then you're having to bring in things like, you know, Spelljammer or the one that I use from um, Dark Fury's publishing, Aether and Flux, Sailing the Traverse. Most likely in a fantasy campaign, it's going to be extra planar, so more like Planescape, where you're having Azimars and Tieflings as ambassadors. Oh yeah, we visited your world decades ago, and these are the the result of those unions here. They, are, they will be your contacts with us. Or just flat out angels and demons coming down and saying, hey, you get, we... <laughs> Let's do a little trade. You, we have something that you that we need, or we have something that you want, but there's something that we need of yours, and we can work out something equitable. And of course, these beings are going to be conduct. And and I've seen in Pathfinder, they have a lot of these apostate devils and contract devils that would deal with that perfectly, because they are the ones that would be wanting to work with certain races. Now, Majestic Twelve. In a future setting? Yeah, it'd have to be either time travel or dimensions for that, too. Because if you're in a future setting, depending on the future. Now, if it's post-apocalyptic, yeah, inventing aliens. Well, first of all, if you're bringing aliens into a post-apocalyptic, depending on the nature of the apocalypse, it kind of throws the the game kind of off. As far as genre, you're then losing the one genre and getting another. But yeah, most likely in the future, it's going to be time or dimensions. It's going to be, yeah, these beings are from hyperspace. You know, we bump into them all the time. And so our government is linked with them. So they give us stuff to help not run into them. And we give them things in return, you know. So basically, it sounds, it's it's the security force that keeps that government and aliens contract safe and hidden. Uh, next one, kind of patting myself on the back here for some of these uh, things that I came up with for... The Men in Black. Kay, did you just flashy thing me? Um, has been a staple conspiracy since the 50s. Large imposing men in black suits with dark sunglasses claim to be government agents. Most report them in to be, indicate them seeming a little off, either appearing, acting, or sleep, speaking in a slightly inhuman way. This has led to several side theories of the men's being aliens, alien-human crossbreeds, automatons, or demons. Many theorists simply assume that they are, in fact, government agents working for the NSA. Most of these appearances follow UFO sightings by reliable witnesses or sightings that produce evidence. They generally request silence and ending all evidence, subsequently obliquely threatening the target if they resist. Some individuals report being chased or harassed by the men after run-ins, but the threats seem generally ineffective. They serve generally as servants of another conspiracy. Most dedicated modern conspiracy games will probably include several flavors of men in black. Government investigators in PCs will often seem to be men in black to the people they're questioning. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Now, it's funny because in the Palladium Books game Nightbane, you had, okay, supernatural event, extra-dimensional beings come in, take over most of the government's police, military, and all of the alphabet soup agencies... ATF, FBI, CIA, NSA, all of them are subsumed into one agency, the NSB, the National Security Bureau. Now, their men in black were actually these bugs known as Namtar that were basically walking around in human suits made of blood, mucus, and pa like paper mache. So they had that sort of waxy complexion, and they always wore shades because they couldn't get the human eyes right. 
you would see these okay. black empty sockets. So they always wore the shades. And they talked like this. You are to come with us. We are here from the National Security Bureau. And they would very slowly flip open the badge. In my Robotech Nightbane mashup game that I ran until recently, I got to play those type of agents. And it was fun because they realized they were dealing... Because they were all in the know, these player characters. They knew that these guys were not human. And so the players were there trying to, you know, trip them up to show them to, let's say, a new member of the team. Yeah, they're not human at all. They're bugs walking around in human suits. They managed to damage a man in black enough and our resident ground pounder gangbanger, just known as Brick, well, let's say the remains of the Namtar, he was scraping off of his combat boots for a while. Um, but yeah, the Men in Black, usually they're, you know, what was the one project in the seven Project Blue Book. That was the one that I always hear about UFOs. And of course, you know, three movies about them and a fourth coming out supposedly with um, Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson from Thor Ragnarok. They're going to be the London in the London Bureau of the MIBs. That's coming out in a couple of years. So yeah, we know about the Men in Black. I mean, we've been inundated even before Will and Tommy Lee put on the suits and shades. Um, sure. Fantasy? Not the Harpers, because the Harpers were like good guys. They wanted to spread knowledge and wisdom. They didn't want to hide things. You would have to have some type of massive conspiracy, probably involving extra planar stuff, and you would be having very nondescript people coming in, acting like government agents, and, you know, like local constables and going, yeah, just go away. Nothing to see here. Don't mind that slime trail leading into the sewer. You didn't see anything. And the thing is, with magic, you could make the flashy thing. That'd be the good thing. It'd just be a, like a wand of modified memory. Boom. You didn't see nothing. Walk your beat. Uh, futuristic, as I said, it'd be having to hide time travelers or dimensional people. Now, the Merovingians, or as I put in quotes, the 90s band, the Jesus and Mary chain. Uh, now... A lot of you probably heard of the term Merovingian from the second and third Matrix movies, the French-accented... Merovingian? Yeah, the French-accented information broker played by Lambert Martin, I believe his name was. Um, Okay. Andrea Bellucci played uh, Persephone, his wife. But the Mm -hmm. Merovingians actually stretched from the 5th to the 8th century in parts of what was now France and Germany. The dynasty would have probably been entirely ignored in the modern day if not for the legends of its heritage. One claim is that its founder, Merovec, sprang from the union of a woman with a sea creature, taken by many to mean the family had extraterrestrial blood. The other major claim is that they are descended from the offspring of Jesus of Nazareth and Mary Magdalene. That's the one I've heard of. I didn't hear about the woman and sea creature one at all. I hear Mer- <laughs> the, the line of the Merovingians, I think of, again, that's why I put the Jesus and Mary chain. Um, the Merovingian bloodline shows up in many conspiracies for three these reasons, although the dynasty itself is only rarely accused of still ruling the world. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Hold it. Where was that? There is an RPG Objects uh, PDF from... It was for D20 Modern, and you will have to forgive me a second here. 
Bruce knows what I'm doing when he's hearing all this clicking because he's seen the folders. <laughs> yes, you're looking through your massive list of PDFs. Because there, it's there. I know it's there. And it's one of those things, that it's like, here we go. Blood and relics, here we go, yes. This, this is a wonderful example of... And actually, I ended up finding the one Gen Con adventure. I'm trying to find the actual, actual. But Blood and Relics is the game that talks about... And this is low-level magic, and you're having things in it like... The Shards of the Cross of Christ... The Spear of Longinius. And you have... They, they talk about... A, a perfect movie example. Kevin Smith's Dogma. Uh, yeah. Linda Fiorentino being the last scion. And Alan right. Rickman's... Um, Metatron. Guiding her. And of course they pick up Jay and Silent Bob. Um, now with Blood and Relics, they have... The Sang Sang Real. Now the Holy Grail is known as the Sangrail. Sangrail. But the way this is spelled is Sang and Real, the two words. The Sangreal is supposedly the last scion of Christ, therefore he would be part of this Merovingian bloodline. And I mean, again, onebookshelf.com has this this line of PDFs, but that would be what the Merovingians are. Um, like I said, I didn't know anything about the woman and the sea creature. I heard Merovingians, and that was my first go-to. Uh, bloodlines from other races or mystical figures play a part in most settings. The Merovingians definitely have the advantage of being attributed to both, providing an interesting body of contradiction and myth to root a character or family in. Um, one downside of using the Merovingians right now is that many people will associate them with the Matrix and its trilogy. But if you're running a modern campaign that directly involves the origins of Christianity or some type of sea creatures, well, then you can use Merovingians. Yeah. Now, with fantasy settings, Asimars. That they are... Or, demi, or demigods. If you wanted to use some type of good aligned half-breeds, you could substitute the... Mer you could say that all Asimars are... They have angelic blood in them, and so it's this bloodline that makes them where they have to be protected because you have, let's say, angels and demons really can't interact on, on your campaign for all that much time. So they conceive with humans and whatnot, and they make these hybrid children. The hybrid children are now fighting this war. So you've got battles between Azamar and Tieflings and it's all due to this bloodline. The demons and devils are breeding with the humans in order to try to kill off the Azimar. But that's how you could use the Merovingians in a fantasy campaign. In a futuristic campaign? I would probably say... Lost Alien Race or Other Dimensional. Where the bloodline is something to be protected because it is so rare. It has survived all this time. And you could have, like, monks on a planet that are guarding this last member of the race. And if he mates or she mates with a normal human, it's a dominant enough gene that will just keep going. So, 
Yeah, you could do that in a future setting. It would, as I said, it would have to be something of an extra-dimensional nature anyways, which technically upper planes, i.e. heaven, yeah, it's all kind of an extra-dimensional nature. Um, well, you could, uh, if you were, you want to do something along those lines, uh, an alien could, like, take a very compromising video of somebody and then crunch it down into a tiny um, mathematical statement that can be expressed in genes. And then you take that into the junk genes part of somebody's uh, DNA, and all of a sudden the galactic, you know, the galactic uh, family, you know, royal family, realize is that an entire planet is basically carrying the, uh, you know, the the video of you know the king basically uh, doing something along the lines of of, uh, of Game of Thrones. Oh jeez! Wow! And uh, so now all of a sudden they this is we've got you know we've got to bring war against these people and subjugate them and purge them of their unholiness, which they what they really want to do is is purge them of their you know of that particular set of genes, and uh, you know all of a sudden they or or and it could be done like militarily or all of a sudden they um, uh, uh, an altruistic group says we have this this. Uh, you know, this vaccine that will, you know, you'll cure 90% of your flus. And, of course, do this also. <laughs> so, and they're yeah, doing um, saying, you um, know, Retrovirus, yeah. <laughs> then they run into the anti-vaxxers. And they're like, no, no, everybody has to take it. <laughs> How do we deal with these idiots? <laughs> oh. From their point of view, yeah. of course. Okay, now we have MK Ultra, which kind of... I've heard of that. Yeah, CIA drug-induced psi torture. A CIA program in the 50s through the 70s under several different names, MKUltra was a study in combining techniques for interrogation, psychological warfare, and creation of operatives immune to interrogation and torture. It was created in response to alleged use of these techniques by communist forces in Korea. It was revealed to the public in 74, but most records have been destroyed two years previously. Many conspiracy theorists argue that the organization has merely changed its name again and continues its experiments. Performed experiments on American Canadian soil, mostly on unsuspecting civilians, to perfect its techniques. Experiments involved a wide range of drugs, especially LSD, and often do multi-drug cocktails or experimental truth serums that never seem to work quite as well as intended. Sensory deprivation, replaying the subject's recorded voice, electrical shocks, and many other techniques were also used. The project's greatest advances were using multiple techniques together to completely break down a subject leading confession, insanity, and potentially brainwashing. Okay, I am thinking of the George Clooney movie, The, the Men Who Stare at Goats. Oh, uh, I haven't watched it. <laughs> yeah, something about eating eggs laced with LSD or something. My daughter saw the movie and told me about the bit. But yeah, that's a, as soon as I read that, that was the first thing that thought to mind. Also, you could kind of go the Indiana Jones and the King of the Crystal Skull route, because if you remember Kate Blanchett's uh, Russian character, excuse me, yeah. actually Ukrainian character, who, due to Stalin doing things in psychic control, gaining low-level psychic powers, this could have been, and 50s through the 70s, so that would have fit during that time era in that fourth Indiana Jones movie. Uh huh. MK Ultra it, would yeah. have been MK Ultra would have been the opposing U.S. force to, um, Comrade Irina, Irina, I believe her name was. So yeah, I mean, this would be definitely modern, definitely fantasy. The only way I could think of is if you were using like herbalism or alchemy. 
to do the same thing. But yeah, you could. You could have alchemy-induced mental powers or uh, ways to break people. But as I said, the best way to do it would be either through herbal concoctions or alchemy. And in Pathfinder, alchemy, they've got extracts which are just basically potions infused with the, the a little bit of the alchemist's own minuscule amount of mana. Uh-huh. But yeah, you drink them and they're, they're in the same effect as self-only spells. But yeah, that's basically MK Ultra. That's what they would be is just... Um, if you need an evil government conspiracy in the United States, MK Ultra certainly fits the bill. Assuming it still exists in modern times, it would even it would have access to even more advanced interrogation techniques. If psionics exists in your campaign, yeah, they would go there. Uh, prod- programs like this would be even more valuable in fantasy and sci-fi settings as methods of interrogation. Yeah, and you could have countries like kingdoms with all sorts of black ops projects going in their dungeons trying to break political prisoners and possibly members of other races to gain their secrets. Like, we wish to learn the the ability to genetic memory. Why is it that all dwarves are good at this, all elves are good at this? And I know a lot of it's nurture, but if you wanted to make that, well, all elves are good at sword play and archery because of genetic traits, fine. We're going to use these drugs to drugs and magic to break down that part and figure out how to give our humans expert archery skills. Really, it, it, a lot of the, 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 the demi-human gifts are all due to nurture and also the fact that they live longer. You have a dwarf, you know, he's just considered a young adult. Meanwhile, you've had a whole lifetime of human. And elves, let's see, they're what? 50 by the time they're considered an adult or something like that? Yeah, most humans in a medieval setting would be dead by then. True. But yeah, you could have... um, Yeah, for fantasy, it would definitely be a magically backed black ops project to try to chemically deal with people for interrogation and whatnot. And with the future, yeah, the drugs just get better. (laughs) That's all I gotta say. They're just gonna use better better drugs or even use straight-up psionics. Uh, next, we have the NSA, the National Security Agency. Now, I put here, think person of interest, a U.S.-based cyber communications group. Now, generally cast in a dismal light by conspiracy theories, it's responsible for communication intelligence for the federal government, which largely amounts to intercepting signals and the constant race of crypto cryptography and cipher breaking. It's not so much as a secret society in the traditional sense as a closely guarded government operation. Most people who consider the NSA threatening focus on the Echelon system, an immense computer system spread across the U.S. and its English-speaking allies, monitoring billions of electronic communications a day. Several governments have acknowledged the system, but the full range of its capacity is still a closely guarded secret. Um, in a modern conspiracy game, yeah. The NSA would be a great tool for any organization with the U.S. government because electronic communication is so incredibly vast and spread that and that was the whole point of the of the CBS series Person of Interest which I just watched I just finished binging it about a week ago and it has to do with an AI that is trained to watch emails texts phone calls um paper trail electronic paper trails and it was to deduce 
not only terrorist acts possibly happening, but also violent crimes. Now, what the members of that cast, uh, Michael Newsom, Jim Caviezel, Taraji J. Henson, Kevin Chapman, Sarah Shahi, the five of them would be getting social security numbers and they would have to figure out, due to the machine tabulating and finding emails and phone calls, are they going to be a victim or a perpetrator? Meanwhile, the NSA was actually using this same system and later made a better system, foil terrorism, where they'd come in and pop three guys with bullets and they've just saved 10,000 people. So that's basically what the NSA does. They monitor electronic communications. Now, in a modern and futuristic campaign, yeah, these guys that fit great, you know, fit in greatly. Futuristic campaign, you're dealing with interstellar intergalactic communications, which means it's a much bigger web. Now, fantasy game with this, you would have to have some form of magically created communications, which means you're getting into, you're going from a standard fantasy campaign to what is known as arcane punk. Eberron would be a wonderful example. The Eberron setting, where you have magic items that act as telegraphs, sending stones. Now, if you had some magical entity, some, let's say, some captured extra-dimensional, you know, due to planar binding, tracking and monitoring all of this magically, um, magical communications, message spell, you, it wouldn't, you could just have them, okay, message spells, sending spells, um, contact other plane, um, Anything that deals with communicating across great distances via magic. You could have an agency that is designed, and it could be, you know, a covert branch of the King's Messengers or something. And they deal with, okay, we just found a sending spell that was sent a day ago to this location, and it was something about hijacking your, transporting your tax coffers, to the local vaults. Things like that you could do, and that would be akin to a fantasy version of the NSA. because they And they would probably also be covering a lot of non-magical and mundane versions of messengers, like street runners. They would be investigating a lot of street runners too, you know, like little kids, yeah, go tell so-and-so, you know, six blocks away that the shipment of, you know, illegal herbs will be coming in tonight. And so they're picking up these young ruffians and, you know, scaring them into revealing the information. But if you had magical communications too, they would be doing that. Okay, next one. The Ordo, yeah, Ordo Templi Orientis. Now this was formed by Theodore Roos, but later it was led by Aleister Crowley. Um, an attempt to merge the many Masonic and mystical organizations came into the public eye because Roos initiated Crowley, insisting that Crowley already knew the secrets of the Order and therefore had to join. Crowley eventually took control of the Order, but it divided into many, many orders shortly after his death. For a while, there were over a thousand individuals claiming to be the outer head of the Order. They formed, they featured 11 degrees of initiation and generally sought spiritual enlightenment. Yeah, again... Based on the Masons. Um, they assume many of Crowley's beliefs toward magic. 
Thelema, Willa's Law, and the like. The Order survives in fair numbers of modern-day court rulings declaring the leader of the Order, there are still many factions. In modern settings, the OTO provides a good source of random mystical training. Um, obviously, for fantasy settings, yeah. Mage's Guild. They're the Mage's Guild. They're the ones that control all magic in the city. Oh, kind of like the Wizards of Sorcery in the Dragonlance series. They are the ones, if you are, if you do not practice magic wearing the white, red, or black robes, you are considered a rogue wizard, and those orders hunt you down. And they tell you, you have to go to the Tower of High Sorcery at Palanthus or wherever and go through the trials. If you practice magic in Ancelon and you're not one of those orders, you can be killed. That was always my understanding of the Dragonlance setting. And so, doing the OTO as that type of fantasy setting would be really good because, let's say you have a sorcerer in your party, and sorcerers, they innately know magic. Well, if he's throwing fireballs around and everything, and he's not a member of the society, the OTO could be used as something to keep them in check. They would be a secret society that they'd always have to be running from because of the fact that, yeah, our friend here is, it's not from a book. He does this because he can. Now, future? Yeah, this would be another ancient order that knows about magic, and we found out about him in the data banks, and we found this magical artifact. <clears throat> Next, we have the, and we've mentioned this earlier, the P2 Lodge, uh, probably known as Propaganda Due from the Italian Second Propaganda or Propaganda 2. The P2 Lodge provides much of the evidence behind modern Masonic conspiracy theories. P2 had its height at over 900 members in Italy in the Holy See, the Vatican, including the heads of each branch of military intelligence, leading bankers, members of parliament, and leaders of the state broadcasting company. Like the Illuminati, it operated a secret society within Freemasonry. Controlled large parts of the Italian government and economy with connections to several murders, drug running, extensive money laundering, the mafia, the US, US CIA, and the Vatican Bank. Damn. It's revealed when the Grand Master Licio Gelli, also a member of the Knights of Malta, and a former liaison between the Italian fascist government and the Third Reich, fled the country to avoid arrest. Well, gee, considering he was a, 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 part of all of those various conspiracies, no wonder he had to run. He, what, what was it my second best man called? He was an equal opportunity offender. He peeved off everybody. Um, the P2 Lodge, if nothing else, shows how a powerful Masonic organization can exist. Its power comes from its membership and the personal power and connections members could bring to it. It worked between... This sounds like a liaison organization. It's almost like we're all members of these organizations. We're coming to them make our own. And it's almost like an information trading house. That's the way I'm seeing it. Because... Yeah, the people from the Freemasons and the people from the Golden Dawn and we got people over here and we all meet together. Oh, and you guys do this and you do this and you're doing this. No, you stole this from us. And they make their own. It's like a secret society for secret societies. In a way, the P2 Lounge could... Lounge. Hey, thank you. No. Um, <laughs> the P2 Lodge could almost be like a neutral ground. And this would go back to last episode of player characters all being part of secret societies either one in the party is all in the party are or all in the party of different ones they could go to the p2 lodge and they would be among well peers 
Because, yeah, we're all of secret societies, including ones that are enemies, anathematical to each other, but we can't harm each other while we're on sacred ground. It's kind of like in the John Wick movies with the Continental, the hotel. It's two years. It's no spoiler alert, folks. John Wick kills somebody in the Continental. Ian Machane's character has to consider him excommunicado because it's based, the hotel is based in Rome. So, yeah, the P2 Lounge most likely would be a group among groups. Next, we have the Priory of Scion. Not Zion with a Z, Scion with an S. They're linked to the, both the Merovingians and the Knights Templar. Again, this could be, you could link it to those. If they are linked to both of those groups, uh, let's see, the Priory. Organization surrounded by a very confusing group of claims and counterclaims. The basic premise is that the Priory seeks to return the Merovingian dynasty to power. Problem is, the two interpretations of Merovingians, they only confuse that matter. Society's history and power are now thought to be houses, although that hasn't stopped the theorizing. One common interpretation is that the Priory is closely related to the Knights Templar and seeks to restore the bloodline of Jesus' heads of state and religious life. In that version, its members are both opposed to both democracy and modern Christianity as derived from Paul. They seek a return of Jesus' direct descendants who, according to the Priory, have passed down his true word of God throughout the ages. Other interpretations put the true word of God actively in the hands of society's leader, with him passing down proto-Christian or alien wisdom. It's worth pointing out that the founder of the Priory in modern times sometimes claims Merovingian heritage, providing an interesting link between the two societies. Yeah, we're back to the whole bloodline. I mean, just rewind the recording back to those two prior organizations, and the Priory of Zion fits right in. Now we have the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. This is with a Z. And this is pretty much the conspiracy that Jewish people, Jewish bankers, whatnot, run the world. Now, in a way, this was kind of the backbone of a lot of Hitler's rhetoric. The reason why he ended up taking out six million of them. Because after World War I, Europe was wrecked, especially Germany. A lot of the people in monetary power were bankers of Jewish descent. Hitler had his reason right there. I've also heard that Hitler... His mother died of cancer, and it was a Jewish doctor that couldn't save her. So, I mean, it, it, six of one half a dozen of another. But, yeah, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, yeah, um, again, a certain ethnicity or bloodline running things behind the scenes, especially business, that's right up there with the Gnomes of Zurich. Lather, rinse, repeat. You can use the same things, fantasy, modern, futuristic. That some bloodline or ethnicity has that much control over money and trade that you have to deal with them. And again, yeah, you could save that village, but you know that would be only if you play ball with us. The next we have is the Rosacru- Rosicrucians, I think it is. The Order Those of the Rose. Right. Yeah, the Order Those of the Rose and the Cross. The supposed progenitor of both the Golden Dawn and the Masons. And this is not to be confused with the rosy crustaceans from Bureau 13. <laughs> not at all. No. They came onto the public scene in the early 17th century with the publication of three manuscripts on the society's beliefs and alchemy. Various theories explain, exist to explain the Rosicrucians' origins, and several organizations sprang up to claiming to be them. The organization actually described in the manuscripts were never uncovered if it ever existed at all. Many modern orders, such as the Golden Dawn, are traced back to the Rosicrucians and certain Rosicrucian symbols, such as, well, 
the Rose Cross, and the Eye in the Pyramid have since been claimed by Freemasonry. The order claimed ownership of vast amounts of scientific and mystical knowledge, but seemed mostly focused on alchemy and hermetic traditions. Its members aimed to lead humanity in a new age of learning, health, and long life in the fashion of their founder, Christian Rosenkreutz. Yeah, I'm getting here. And Bruce, I'm sure, the Invisible College. Okay. That type of, yeah, we're a secret group and we're getting science together and then we're going to, you know, dole it out to humanity to advance them. Now, whether that's for good or for matter of control, that depends on the campaign. In that case, fantasy, modern, futuristic. Yeah. Um, especially in fantasy, if you're, you have like a a cabal of wizards and alchemists all trying to find new ways to do things and seriously controlling they they may be actually trying to keep magic at bay if somebody finds out a new creates a new spell or creates a new alchemical formula they will do everything they can to try to stop that person from getting a little too powerful including if it's an evil group killing that person and taking their discovery for themselves or replacing them with someone after they kill them and then the person recants saying oh no it was a failed experiment never mind so then we have the Skoptsi the castrated Russian Catholic the leader claimed to both be Tsar the Peter III and the reincarnation of Christ he was a busy guy uh, st- formed a strange crant branch of Christianity in Russia during the waning part of the 18th century. The name translates roughly into the castrated, a term that only rightly applies to the roughly 15% of the members who chose to go through the baptism of fire. Regardless of their physical status, the members were expected to abstain from carnal activities and generally led virtuous lives. Um, yeah, I think this kind of goes without saying. Unless, unlike most secret societies, both genders are freely allowed to participate, although the rights of for the baptism of fire were obviously different based on gender. That's one of those things that didn't need to be said, but I said it anyways because that's how I roll. Beyond the baptism of fire, many of the orders rites centered around hymns and invocations, a large number of ecstatic dancing. Um, their leader, Kondrachi Selivanov, claimed to be both Star Peter III and the reincarnation of Christ. Oh, here, here's some brass. Selivanov Having performed the baptism fire on himself in an early age, was said to be capable of miracles and lived approximately 100 years of age. During his life, his cult kept him well provided during the periods he was not in prison, banished to Siberia, or in asylum. Surprised commentators with the number of wealthy, well-educated members it drew in, especially during the reign of Tsar Alexander I, who respected Slivanov for a time and granted him access to many of the noble houses. Yeah, um... Basically, this would be just a sect of your campaign's religion that just has weird customs. And the very charismatic leader who is saying that he is, <coughs> excuse me, personages from the past. In fantasy, this is really easy to do. Modern, you could do this too. Future, okay. I mean, you still could have the religious overtones in it. Probably really good in like a Fading Suns campaign. Because there are heavy religious overtones. A lot of the worlds revert to fantasy level and the tech that they had because they were like worlds that were like lost colony worlds. If you had a a blaster, that was like a family heirloom. You were still back to swords and maybe psionics. 
Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. That's, um, that's basically the dark over concept. Okay. Let's see, we have one, two, three, four, five. Okay, we got six more. I'm going to try to crank them out real quick here. Skull and Bones, based out of Yale University. Supposedly, W was in it, as in the younger President Bush. Um, it, it Skull and Bones attracts the vast majority of the attention, even though there are several secret, semi-secret societies at Yale. That's the one that got known. It's likely because many of their members have risen to prominence in the political or intelligence arenas, including the three issue three U.S. presidents. It puts forth a malage, mal, a image of malice and death worship, but whether that's reality or mere bravado is hard to say. Each year, 15 junior students are chosen to replace the graduating membership. The members are generally chosen from elite families and are generally promising in other regards. The society, the society ceremony and rituals are thought to be loosely Masonic but contain more death symbolism. Um... Their membership is to be kept completely secret until they leave the university, but afterwards they can proclaim it openly. The other oaths of secrecy still hold, however, so discovering more about society can be challenging. In fantasy, you could have that as as a bardic college, a military academy, a wizard school. All of them have this death-based cult. Not necessarily necromancers, Although that would be really creepy to do it that way. Um, now, as far as modern or futuristic, and if you if you don't want to do magic, you would just have this death-based cult from schools. You would have interstellar megacorp CEOs who have a ring or something that has a skull on it, and they are part of this death-based cult back when they were in college or whatever. So yeah, I could see where that would fit in, and they would they would have, you know, they're walking the corridors of power. More of that secret cabal star chamber BS. We got the Tongs and the Triads. Now, the Tongs are Chinese organized crime. The Triads are mostly based in Hong Kong, and they originally wanted the return of the Ming Dynasty. Now, pretty much they're the ones that, and I'm going to use this term because it's a term I know and it's probably offensive as all hell now, you know, the old Hong Kong chop sake action movies. We all know what the Tongs and Triads are. It's organized crime in China. Sure. Now, you could do fantasy if you wanted to throw in Oriental Adventures type games and have, and let's see, what are they called now in Pathfinder? The Dragon Empires. That's what they are. Or Forgotten Realms, Karatur. Um, If you wanted to throw those type of um, groups into a fantasy campaign, that's fine. That means you can bring in the books like uh, the Path of War books from Dreamscard Press for your Pathfinder game. Or if you're doing 3.5, the Toma Battle Book of Nine Swords. Blood and Fists from RPG Objects is really good for Oriental, adding Oriental martial arts to the game to have like, you know, Tong and Triad leg breakers. Assassins like um, Lethal Weapon 4, Jet Li's character. Or... In the Haven City of Violence setting by Louis J. Porter, the Red Wing Tong. I'm using that in one of my Thursday games now. So yeah, um, matter of fact, the Shen family from the Second World Source book, they're a Tong. And again, we've incorporated them to Bureau 13. I think I even mentioned them when I did that, those three episodes. So we have the Trilateral Condition created by David Rockefeller, similar to the Bilderberg Group, which was also partially created by Rockefeller. Now, Trilateral Commission, 
Found in 73, non-government organizations tend to bring closer cooperation between North America, Western Europe, and Japan. All rich influence, again, the 1%. Many conspiracy theorists still see the commission as serving solely the interests of the international bankers. Rockefeller, yeah. Um, mostly accused of working toward the self-interest of his own members at the expense of others. More rarely, they've been suspect, suspected of being Satanists, drug traffickers, or like the Anunnaki. Yeah, they do have Japan, so if you wanted to bring more of a world flavor to this group, then you would... The bilateral corporation, you could use them. Or the bilateral commission. Trilateral. Yeah. Slate, folks. And so, as I said, if you wanted to do that in a fantasy campaign, you could have people from the Dragon Empires come over to the Inner Sea. Or if you're in Faerun, oh yeah, we traveled across the... Not the Sil- The Golden Road from Karator, and we've traveled many months, and now we are here, and... This is our once-every-two-year summit that we have in Waterdeep. We have the UMMO, which is a Spanish-based ufology group later revealed as a prank. Began around Madrid, Spain, with sightings of a UFO bearing a symbol as um, reversed parentheses with a plus sign in the middle, or similar to the letter H. Later, documents bearing the symbols were mailed from several continents to scientists and other experts detailing a number of topics. Yeah, a psychologist had come forward with his assistant claiming they faked the whole thing to demonstrate the abiding paranoia of the human mind. Now, yeah, the fact that these letters would be getting sent out and these letters would be sent to prominent people, that would be a good way to build up this particular one. And if you did have it as extra planar beings in a fantasy campaign or time and dimensional beings in a future campaign, you could build up the suspense by the player characters in whatever capacity they are. Oh yeah, we have, you know, we're getting these people getting all these weird letters with this symbol on it. What does it mean? And so you track them down and get it to the point where they find out about this conspiracy. And in, in, in your campaign, you can make it real. That it actually is something going on with these people. And finally, last in the alphabetical order, but another one that has gained a lot of prominence probably over the past 20, 30 years, the Yakuza. Japanese organized crime. Lots of tattoos, not so much with fingers if you make mistakes. Now, some of their influences include the armed militia of certain towns, runners of illicit gambling dens, peddlers with their own internal protection racket, and more recently, armed mercenary gangs who assist in breaking up labor organizations. Unlike many organizations of the same type, the Yakuza will admit some members who are not Japanese by blood. Also, unlike other organizations, many Yakuza members are open with their membership, even in public. They wear garish clothing, having tattoos declaring their affiliation, and usually have open offices. Each member of the organization is expected to sever ties with his family and transfer these ties to the new Yakuza family. Members will likewise refer to each other by family titles. Uh, yeah, the majority of the funding comes through various sorts of protection operations. Some of the operations, especially those involving corporations, are more akin to blackmail. Uh, drug running, gun smuggling, loan sharking, running gambling houses, and the sex industry are directly perform- part of the Yakuza's network or performed by outsiders who pay a fee to Yakuza. Now, again, Oriental Adventures, Dragon Empires, what have you. Karator. Now, for modern and futuristic campaigns, the Yakuza is wonderful. They are pretty much like the big bad crime people in cyberpunk and in modern campaigns. And if you have its space going 
Japan is a space agency. It's all good. They can be out there with their, and, and what is the term for their mega corporations? There's a term. Let me think about it. Zaibatsu. They would have their Zaibatsus out in space. You could have the Nakahara Tower from Die Hard. You could have a Nakahara Tower on every, you know, corporate world that they have. So yeah, putting the Yakuza out there, if you're just willing to give an Asian flavor to a fantasy campaign, you could have the Yakuza there. And you could tell. Again, they got the tattoos, they got the garish clothing. One of them might have messed up, they're missing a pinky, and that was often a sign of punishment. They would take a tanto and hack off that pinky right in front of their boss and offer that bit of appendage to him as an offering. I screwed up, please don't kill me, let me do my job. All right, let's, let's put a bow on this for this evening. Over the past couple episodes... Myself, Bruce, and Dana and Tony, who cannot be here for this episode tonight, we found ways of adding real-world cults and secret societies as a new ally, as a new enemy, and as a new form of PC group. We have given you ideas as far as how to run them in various types of campaigns, fantasy, modern, and various futuristic types. We have given you ways on how well and how much and how far reaching these secret societies are. Um, also, how to play as a member of a secret society. Either as you, you have one character who has this agenda, the entire party has the same agenda, or, and I stress this again, experienced role players only. Different characters are belong to different secret societies. PC-ran secret societies also have their uh, various problems, internal tensions, conflicts with other societies and people trying to destroy the societies in the case of a superhero game usually other villains and law enforcement are trying to stop the supergroup because they're not unless they're officially sanctioned by the government then they are vigilantes effective so yeah we have gone through many many secret societies that have been known throughout history now if you have any questions on any of this please contact us on the fans of the gaming on the frontier podcast Facebook group. I do believe iTunes. If you download this podcast through that source, send a comment there. Uh, not sure if MeWe is going to have, because Google Plus is going down, I'm not sure if MeWe is going to have, if we're going to have a forum there yet. I mean, I'm a member of MeWe. Uh, Blix and John got me in on it, but I don't know if we're going to go through that avenue yet. And of course, you know, if you run these things in your Bureau 13 and Fringeworthy games, Bruce and I are still involved with those groups, so fire the questions away and we will get back to you on them as soon as we get them. We usually try to, you know, give a turnover rate pretty quickly on answers. We will have more for you next time, but until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.